Reconstructionist Radio presents The War Room, where we discuss tactics for strategic Christian living. Mighty Lord, extend your kingdom, be the truth with My name is Jason Sanchez, and I'm here with Bill Evans. Our guest today is Stephen Perks. Stephen is the director of the Kuiper Foundation and the editor of Christianity and Society. He has lectured on a variety of issues, including theology and Christian worldview, economics, politics, education, legal history, and music at conferences around the world. His ministry has a particular focus on promoting the Christian worldview, on applying the Christian faith to the social and political issues that face church and society in the contemporary world. Stephen, welcome to the War Room. Can you tell us a little bit of the history behind the founding of the Kuiper Foundation, what it is you guys are seeking to do? Uh, do you have any conferences or events planned in the near future? We have nothing specifically planned in terms of conferences at the moment, but perhaps if I tell you a little bit about how the foundation was started, um, we can come on to what's happening now. Originally, the Kuiper Foundation was set up in order to make available literature that dealt with how the Christian faith applied to all areas of life and to make it available in a context that was suitable to the UK. There was much literature available, but largely it was written in the USA and it was dealing with USA cultural issues. Now, although largely those issues are the same in the UK, the cultural context is slightly different and we felt there was a need that um, for those issues to be explained in a way that people in the UK could understand them, applied to their own particular kind of situations and, and lives and their own, their own cultural situation. Prior to setting up the foundation, I had been distributing literature to friends. I had built up a, a, a mailing list that I would send friends literature that I got over from the USA and we would send things like the Chalcedon Report, or rather it wasn't the Chalcedon Report at the time, it was position papers, there were one or two sheet papers, it was before the Chalcedon Report was actually printed as a magazine. I would send literature out to various people, I would get it in bulk and send it out to various people, but there came a point where we thought that um, we needed to do something that was more written in the UK, dealt with these issues from a UK perspective and therefore we set up the Kuiper Foundation as a literature ministry to get this kind of information out and this kind of teaching because in the churches one didn't get this kind of teaching and also there was no desire for it. I couldn't find many people in the churches interested in this kind of thing. There was no appetite for it amongst, certainly amongst evangelicals. The liberals tend to be more interested in social issues, but they do not approach these issues from a biblical perspective. And usually the answers they provide tend to be socialistic, although it is true to say that evangelicalism is very socialistic here as well. Now, we do have quite a number of people around the UK who are interested in these things, and uh, we get together every now and then and we see them. But they, they tend to be in the same situation I was in, which is that they're in churches that are largely unsympathetic to what they're trying to do and so we have got a sort of connection of people interested in 
in these things and we do get together but from the church point of view there really is usually indifference at best and quite often hostility to um, what we're trying to say. So I was distributing literature to friends around the country who were interested in this message and um, we used to send the, these, uh, the Chalcedon position papers out and things like that. There came a point where we decided that it would be best to deal with it within a UK context and deal with the issues and try and apply these things to a UK context. And that's why the Kuiper Foundation was set up. So we started publishing literature and we started publishing, I suppose, the equivalent of the position papers that Chalcedon used to publish. We also started organising conferences and we um, got quite a number of people over, uh, not only from America, but from various other places, uh, Spain and Switzerland and um, Germany, to speak about these issues. We had RJ Rush Dooney came to speak and uh, David Chilton and various other people, David Estrada from Spain, um, Thomas Schurmacher from Germany. And so we, we ran a few conferences uh, to create more interest and we've continued to run conferences of various kinds ever since. We eventually started publishing a journal every quarter called Christianity and Society and that ran for 19 years. It's no longer printed. The reason is not that it's formally finished but what happened was that the internet really took over. I used to stockpile essays for up to two years. People would send me essays for the journal for up to two years and I would be stockpiling them. But what happened was as the internet became more and more usable, as people got their own blog sites and websites, less and less material came in and people were publishing their own stuff on their own websites. And it came to the point really where we went over to the internet as well and we set up a website and you can visit our website at www kuiper.org that's kuiper k-u-y-p-e-r and so we put our literature on there you we also have printed books over the years and you can buy our books from our website and you can also download free of charge pdfs of all the books that we print and we also put lectures and uh, talks and short films up on the website as well so we started out basically as a literature ministry we added conferences to it and the literature side of it, not the book side, but the journal side has really been taken over by the internet. We continue doing that. We've also continued running conferences. The last conference we had was a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago now, when Bojidar Marinov came over and spoke and Jason Lawton also spoke at the conference and we do have conference. We will produce conferences again. We haven't got a date for the next conference. I don't know when for sure that will be or who will speak, but we do plan to do more uh, in the future. Stephen, I read in your bio that you were ordained as a minister in the Presbyterian Church, but now you're a part of the Church of England. Can you talk a little bit about church polity and uh, how you came about making that switch over to the Church of England, the Anglican Church? Well, I am not fundamentally a denominational creature. I can fit in in various different kinds of churches. For me, the issue of the form of a church government is very much secondary to the character of a church government. What matters more is the character of the government than its form. The Bible does give us basic principles about how the church is to be governed. 
but it does not give us a rarefied ecclesiology. It doesn't give us a rarefied Presbyterian ecclesiology. It doesn't give us a rarefied ecclesiology of any kind. Presbyterians will say um, the government of the church is by elders, and that's true. Episcopalians will say yes, but there are there are also overseers. Um, the episkopos, from which we get the word bishop, as well as the presbyteros, from which we get the the word priest or presbyter, which we translate as elder. But it is true that uh, the New Testament shows us that there are elders in the church. And all, well, certainly the C of E, Presbyterians, and many churches will agree with that, that eldership is there. But those principles can be worked out in various different ways. I think in most denominations, certainly most mainline denominations, um, these principles can be worked out. I even know of a Church of England where the church itself, the local church, was run very much on eldership lines. They had elders and deacons. So they were a Church of England, but within the local congregation, it very much operated on an eldership principle. So there are variations and I think that what's important is applying the basic principles which the Bible gives us, which I think can be worked out in most denominations. So I am not really fundamentally a denominational man. And I will fit in. What matters to me more is the character of a church government. Now, um, I once said this to a Presbyterian minister and he said to me, I said to him, uh, the character of the church government is more important than the than the form and I'd rather be in a godly Episcopal church than a liberal Presbyterian church and he said to me brother there are no godly Episcopal churches well that's absurd and it's actually the first main denomination to go down to liberalism in the UK was a Presbyterian church the Church of England held out far longer than the Presbyterian church against liberalism and apostasy so that kind of thinking, in my opinion, is just sectarian nonsense. And you've got to look at the individual local congregation. So, yes, I believe that the church um, is governed by elders. But those principles are not set forward in the New Testament in a, in a rarefied ecclesiology. And most denominations do have a rarefied ecclesiology. And they want to claim that the Bible sets forth every jot and tittle of their ecclesiology um, you know, by divine right. And it doesn't. It sets forward basic principles and we can work those principles out. If there's really the will, we can work those principles out in most denominations at the local level. Stephen, I was listening to your um, essay or book on church and its administration last night on Reconstructionist Radio. And it was clear to me that you... If you were Presbyterian, uh, you would probably be more comfortable saying that you were a Presbyterian with a small p. In other words, you you, you agree that there are elders in church government, correct? Well, yes, I do believe the church should be governed by elders. But as I've said, I don't think that this is a to be interpreted in a strict uh, ecclesiastical fashion as we get with Presbyterianism, a very rarefied ecclesiology the word priest is a contraction of presbyter and um, the episcopalians have priests presbyters they also say they have bishops which is uh, comes from the word episkopos episkopos pis, the, the part piscop gets corrupted to bishop in the english language so they have bishops priests and deacons 
Presbyterian churches have elders and deacons or presbyters and deacons. Now, I'm not saying that, uh, I mean, the Presbyterians would say that overseer and elder is the same. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I'm not too concerned with that issue. What I'm more concerned about is the character of the church government. And that's what's important. Having said that, I am happy to fit in in many different uh, interpretations of those principles because I do not think the New Testament gives us a hard and fast rule or a hard and fast, let's say, hard, fast ecclesiology that we can claim by divine right is the only one that must be followed. Clearly, that's not the case. Also, there can be abuses in all these systems and there can be abuses even in a system which operates according to the biblical principle of elders and deacons. And frequently there are abuses, tyranny, apostasy, heresy. You know, your form of church government isn't going to preserve you from any of these things. Having said that, I was ordained in a Presbyterian church many years ago in 1990. And the, the reason for that was, or the, the plan was to start planting Presbyterian churches here in the UK. And my job as an evangelist, I was ordained as an evangelist, to start a church, build it up, get somebody to take, come in as the uh, minister or pastor, then move on somewhere else, start another one. When somebody takes over as pastor, then move on and start another one. And we did start three mission churches. But I have to say, in all honesty, they all failed. They all shut down in the end. And we came to a point where... We, we were living we ended up living where we live now which is a west of west, southwest of england and we had to make a decision do we just worship as a family on our own or do we join a local church with all the you know problems that that can often entail and we decided to join a local church and at that point i left the presbytery i didn't leave under a cloud but what we tried to do hadn't worked england on the whole is not the English are not are not very well disposed towards Presbyterianism. They're more impressed with Episcopalianism and with independency. If you go to Scotland, you'll find Presbyterianism is very popular. Um, and this is just a fact of life. It's something to do with the, the English people, something to do with the Scottish people. And the very rarefied form of a Presbyterian ecclesiology doesn't go down too well in England. There still is a Presbyterian church here, it's called the United Reformed Church, or what I often call the United Deformed Church, because it's completely liberal. So as, you know, Presbyterianism being the right form of church government, it doesn't save you from the apostasy and the heresy and all the other things that go along with that. The important point is getting the character of the church government right. But uh, we left the, the Presbytery and we joined a local Anglican church. And since then, uh, well, for a long time, we went to the Anglican church. I have to say that now I no longer go to the Anglican church. Now, I'm not saying I would never go to an Anglican service again, but I don't go there regularly anymore. I find now that the Church of England is apostate as well. And... When I look at what's happening there, I just it's just so difficult to see what's happening as anything but um, the wholesale abandonment of the faith once delivered. It's it, When you look at what's happening, it's become apostate. 
And there are problems if you're not, if you don't follow that liberal agenda, you have problems. So the fact is, I don't go to the Church of England anymore. I'm I'm C of E by dint of the fact that I'm, I'm English. I was born here. The C of E is a state, well, I say state church. It's a established church. And I have no problem with the establishment principle. In fact, I believe in the establishment principle. I think the form of establishment we have in England is wrong. We have the church established denominationally, and I don't like that. I think we would be better to have the church established confessionally. In other words, your confession is the important thing, not the details of your denominational structure. But that's what we have. Um, As I say, I don't think it's the best form of establishment, but I do believe in the establishment principle. But that's not the problem. The problem with the church here isn't establishment. The problem is the apostasy. And that's what has to be dealt with. And that's what the church on the whole is unwilling to deal with. Um, so now uh, we do meet, I meet with, we have five families that meet together on a regular basis. We don't meet every Sunday. We want to move towards doing that, but we need to get more people and we need to get a, a venue that can have us every Sunday. We also have midweek studies. We have midweek Bible studies and we also have a reading group. And, uh, we do various things. We meet regularly. Uh, we meet on a Sunday. We have we meet at 11 and we have teaching, discussion about what we've uh, listened to and prayer. And we also eat a meal together. And when we come to the meal, that's open more widely to other Christians as well who've maybe gone to other churches for their church service. But they're welcome to come to us to join with the meal. That is very much a mission, a missionary situation. It's small, it's pioneer work, but what we're trying to do is develop that and build it up and get enough families to get that going into a, a regular weekly meeting as well. So the situation I have here is, yes, I am Church of England. I am a member of the Church of England, but that's largely because I'm an Englishman and I, I'm born I'm born here and I live here. But I don't go along to the the Church of England meetings anymore. I do go along to the odd uh, to the odd meeting. But I don't go regularly now when we're trying to develop a a fellowship. But my concern with this is not that we simply establish another church meeting. It seems to me that the Christians in an area should constitute a, a community. And by community, I don't mean a commune, but a real society, a social order. And the church is part of that, but it's not the whole of it. One of the problems we face is that in the churches, the whole of the Christian faith is condensed into what happens in church and that's problematic because it turns the church into a mystery cult and the church isn't a mystery cult it's a faith for the uh, sorry christianity isn't a mystery cult it's a faith for the whole of life and um what we're concerned what i'm concerned about is that we develop a christian community and as part of that yes a regular weekly church meeting with a regular weekly communion which is an ag- the agape feast a meal together and but we must seek to build the community because the community of christians is to be a manifestation of the kingdom of god and the bible tells us jesus tells us that it's the kingdom of god and god's righteousness god's justice that we have to put first not setting up a local church meeting if we pursue the kingdom the local regular weekly church meeting will be part of that 
if we pursue simply to set up churches, we will have lots of mystery cults, but we will not pursue the kingdom in its fullness. And the important part, the important part is pursuing the kingdom in its fullness and trying to build a Christian community which is a manifestation of that kingdom and that operates across the full spectrum of social life. And so that's what we're trying to do. As I say, it's small, it's a missionary situation, it's a pioneer mission situation. Um, and so that's, that's the situation I'm in at the moment. Stephen, I wanted to ask you if you had any correspondence with David Bonson, Greg Bonson's son. In a recent event in California, he mentioned that his father's most endearing term for himself, his favorite term, was um, Kyperian. And um, I, I, I know pretty, pretty much what that is, but there are listeners who don't. And you being the head of the Kuiper Foundation... I wonder if you'd address what that is for our listeners and also just wondered if you had any sort of correspondence with David Bonson. Well, first of all, let me say that I do not know David Bonson and so I cannot make any comments um, with regard to David Bonson. I've never known him. I, I don't know what his position is. However, I did know Greg Bonson. Greg came over and spoke here on a number of occasions and um, I did know him and I guess what he would mean by Kyperion, I suspect is, is broadly what I mean by that, by that term. And what I understand that term referring to is that Christianity is not merely a theological system, but also a world view. It is about the whole of life, and it's about the whole of the Bible for the whole of life. And so therefore Christianity is about all spheres of life. There is also the important issue of what's called sphere sovereignty, the idea that in life there are various spheres that can't be reduced to each other. So we have the state, we have the church, we have the family, and these all have their own authority structure that comes directly from God. The family doesn't get its authority from the church, the church doesn't get its authority from the state, the state doesn't get its authority from the church. These are authority structures that relate to each other but they're not reducible to each other and they get their authority directly from God and all areas of life are under God. Kuiper has been misunderstood in this respect because he believed in what at the time when he was alive would have been called political pluralism. That is not the same thing as the modern idea of principled pluralism. The idea of principled pluralism is that the state can be religiously neutral. That is not what Kuiper believed. He taught uh, that the state had to honour God and was had to be subject to God's ordinances. But it didn't get its authority from the church and it wasn't subject to the church. Likewise, the church got its authority from God and the family. So there was a plurality of authority structures in life which couldn't be reduced to each other. And, and they get their authority from God. And that at the time, at the beginning of the 20th century, would have been called political pluralism. Since then, we've moved on very much to the monist state, where the state controls everything in society. And these older terms have taken on new meanings. And when people talk about pluralism today, they're not really meaning what Kuiper meant by that or what political theorists meant by that at the time, at the beginning of the 20th century and end of the 19th century. What Kuiper's referring to, and what sometimes gets called political pluralism, is a plurality of authority structures in society which are not reducible to each other, 
but each of which get their authority from God. So the whole of life is under God, but these different spheres are not reducible to each other. The terminology of pluralism now means something else, and we must be careful not to get that confused, and I think a number of people do get that confused with regard to Kuiper. For example, making certain claims about Kuiper that, that, he, that his views were the modern kind of pluralism. That's not so. But um, certainly I would uh, adhere to that term in broad principle. I have a Kuiperian view. However, that doesn't mean I agree with everything that Kuiper said. And I, I suspect that would be the same for Greg Banson as well. Um, I suspect he's referring to the broad principle of Christianity as a worldview, not merely a theological system, and to ideas such as sphere sovereignty. And out of that comes the whole school of thought, such as, um, you know, the Dioveden school and um, Van Til, which, of course, is very important. And um, Greg Banson used Van Til's presuppositional apologetics, and that's very important. So there's a whole school of thought that comes out of the, the Kuyperian perspective. As I say, that doesn't mean that in everything... You, we necessarily follow Kuiper, but it means there's a broad perspective there. And we use the term Kuiper as a peg to hang the work we're doing on, a peg that people can identify with. Now, here in the UK, Christians don't really know an awful lot about Abraham Kuiper at all. They know that he was reformed, that he was orthodox, and that he promoted Christianity as a worldview but that's just about it really so it's a convenient term for us to hang what we're doing on and give somebody an idea of the stable from which we're coming but it doesn't mean that we um, exist to promote Abraham Kuyper personally or to republish his works or anything like that nor does it mean we agree with everything it means that we're promoting a particular perspective about what the Christian faith is, a particular understanding of the Christian faith. And I suspect that that is what Greg Banson also meant, or that that, that is how he also used the term. Um, one final thing I would say, though, is that um, Kuyper's book, Lectures on Calvinism, which was the book made from a series of lectures he gave in the USA, was a very important book for me to read as a young Christian. It was one of the one of the four most important books I read as a young Christian, the fourth most important book that I read as a young Christian. A very, very good book. And so I would recommend that book, and um, it, it is a very good book. What do you make of the, the Queen of England's recent statement that she serves the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the Queen has to say that, really, because she is a Christian monarch. Constitutionally, our monarchy is Christian, when she was crowned, she swore to govern the country according to the law and the gospel of God and to uphold the Protestant Reformed religion established in law. So she's a Christian monarch, or rather the monarchy is Christian, regardless of what the Queen personally believes. Now, I don't know the Queen and I can't say what her personal commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ is. I don't, she says she serves the Lord Jesus Christ. I do not question that, but it's very difficult to know what that really means when the monarchy is Christian, when she's crowned as a Christian, and when we have had so much legislation 
that isn't Christian and that has received royal consent. So whatever you say about this, the fact is, the Queen, although she was crowned as a Christian monarch and made certain oaths to God, nevertheless has presided, or rather given royal assent, to some of, well, to, to the most vicious and pernicious legislation that we have ever seen in this country, namely the Abortion Act. Now, there is an argument that as a constitutional monarch, there was nothing the Queen could do. She is obliged to, to give royal assent to, to laws that Parliament passes. And constitutionally, that's true. But if she had refused to give royal consent to the Abortion Act, what would have happened? Well, the argument is there would have been a constitutional crisis and the monarchy would have been abolished. Well, that's an assumption. I don't think we can assume that necessarily would have been the outcome. All those decades ago, when this act came forward, if the Queen had refused to give royal assent, it would have provoked a constitutional crisis. What would have happened then was that Parliament would have to decide whether the Queen, whether the monarchy should be abolished or not. And I don't think we can assume it would have been that simple. It may well have been that any government that decided to abolish the monarchy would themselves have been perhaps subject to a vote of no confidence. And once that happens, it triggers a general election. And whatever general election would have pursued would have been largely about the constitutional question of the monarchy. And it may well be that the British people vote would have voted for a government that would have kept the monarchy. So the, co the fact that it would have provoked a constitutional crisis does not necessarily mean that the, que that the monarchy would have been abolished. It may have only meant that there would have been a change of government and that the, the people's will would be sought by that. And there is a lot of support for the monarchy in Britain. And all those, deca all those decades ago, I think even more perhaps so i'm not i'm not convinced that the uh, that had the queen refused to give royal assent to the abortion law that it would have been a foregone conclusion that the monarchy would have been abolished i think god would have honored that commitment and i think that the queen should have refused to give royal assent but let's suppose for the sake of argument that the monarchy would have been abolished better to lose the monarchy than to give royal assent to that vicious legislation it would have been better to lose the monarchy um, than than for the queen to have given a royal assent to the abortion act so that's that's my view jesus said you will know them by their works now i i do not claim to know whether the queen is or isn't i i presume there are a lot of situations in which she has to give royal assent to legislation she doesn't like but there has to be a line drawn somewhere. And if you don't draw it at the Abortion Act, where on earth do you draw it? And if, that, if, the, if the monarchy cannot draw a line there, of what value is the monarchy? Now, I am not anti-monarchy. I am not particularly pro-monarchy. I think while we have a monarchy and it can be linked with the Christian faith, it's a good thing to have. If it's not linked with the Christian faith, what's the point of it? Uh, to be honest, this is the problem for me, because at the end of the day, this is a religious question. It's not just a constitutional question. 
If the Queen has sworn to govern the country according to the law and the gospel of God and to uphold the reformed Protestant religion established in law, how on earth do you how on earth do you give royal consent to the abortion act? It boggles my imagination. So I cannot comment really on what the Queen says about her being a Christian. Um, you can take her at her word, but there still remains this question of giving royal assent to such vile legislation that I suppose for myself troubles me greatly because I think this is such a terrible thing that this abortion is such a terrible thing it's a true holocaust but as it stands the monarchy is a constitutional monarchy and it is a Christian monarchy so Stephen uh, by the by the sound of what you're saying the, the church in England is pretty much apostate and the state is reflecting that apostasy and they're passing these unjust laws, uh, the murdering of the unborn, and the monarchy is doing nothing about it, but they're just signing their name to it and, and letting it go forth. Uh, so what is the relationship at this point in time between the church, the state, and the monarchy? Is it just a big facade uh, or are they in cahoots in, in calling good evil and evil good? The relationship between the monarch, the church and the state is that the the monarch is the head of the Church of England as well as the head of the, the state. Um, the fact is the Church of England is apostate now and all the other mainline denominations are largely the same. The Church of England, if anything, in my opinion, held out longer than the other mainline denominations. But nevertheless, I do I, I do accept that uh, the Church of England is now apostate. And the problem is the apostasy. The problem is not the establishment principle. Um, the Queen is nominally the head of the Church of England. Now, I know that's a nonsense because Jesus Christ is the head of the Church. Okay, But before the, in, before the British monarch was the head of the Church in England, the Pope was the head of the Church in England. And that was no better. In fact, it was considerably worse. The whole thing was a mess. The whole thing needed reforming. And we got reform, but we didn't get perfection. And you don't get perfection in this life. Now, when you think about the work of God in history, when you think about church history, you can't think about it as something static. And you can't really, you know, if you're trying to, if you're trying to do the work of God, if you're trying to do the com Great Commission, you're never going to achieve something static. It's it's a movement. When you think about what God is doing in history, it's a movement one from beginning to end with a development in the middle. So I like to think about this in this way. If you were to look at a picture, you would go and look at this picture and you could go and look at the same picture many, many times and it would always be the same. The picture would never change. You might notice different things in the picture at different viewings, but the picture never changes. It's always the same. You can go and listen to a piece of music and it's not static. It moves from a beginning to an end. It's developing all the time. It's moving on. What you're getting as you sit there is not the same thing. It's not static. Even if you go to different performances, you get different interpretations. But that's perhaps pushing the analogy too far. What I'm trying to point out is that what we have with Christianity is more like a piece of music 
than it is a painting. And when we look at history and the history of Christianity, think of it more like as a piece of music with a travelling from one thing to another rather than as something static. We're not going to get perfection in this life. We aim for it, yes, of course. And I don't think the English church settlement is perfect at all. Don't get me wrong. And it does need reforming, even though I believe in the establishment principle. But you've got to see that things change, things move on. Before we had the monarch, the British monarch as a head of the church, we had the Pope. That was worse, that needed reforming. We got reform, we didn't get perfection. And there always must be reform. That was a, one of the shibboleths of the Reformation. Uh, Semper reformanda, always reforming. Um, the churches are, always ought to be reforming. And, um, and you know, there are elements of Presbyterianism in the Church of England. The Church of England has synods now. It has national synods, regional synods and local synods. And there's a local church council. And you can get elected onto the local church council. So it is Episcopalian, and a very Episcopalian in look, of course, but it is an Episcopalian church. It has bishops, priests and deacons. But it also has councils. It also has synods, or uh, which is somewhat similar to presbyteries, really, and that operate on the church, local, regional and national levels as well. But that doesn't change the fact that it's still apostate. You know, you can have synods, presbyteries and they can be apostate so the relationship is not perfect it's not ideal effectively the state has a veto over who becomes archbishop two names are put forward and um i think the prime minister gets to veto one i'm really not sure of the exact mechanics of this but things like that are not good i know and i accept that um and there does need to be reform, but the, that is the relationship. It is a established church, and the monarch is the formerly the head. But by that, I don't suppose any Christian in the Church of England means that the Queen is the head in the sense that the Jesus Christ is the head of the church. But um, yeah, there are problems with it. But but that's a relationship. One thing I'd like to add here is that the confession of the Church of England is thoroughly reformed. The 39 articles are a thoroughly reformed confession. Um, and in the town near where I live, the only reformed church is the Church of England. It's reformed in confession, it's not reformed in practice. But there are no reformed churches in practice in the area that I live in. Now, what's not often appreciated is that prior to the meeting of the Westminster assembly the the divines in the english church had been calling for the 39 articles to be united with the irish articles to get a more comprehensive confession of faith now the irish articles were the articles of faith that the irish anglican church used and they were different to the 39 articles and if you put these two together you get a more comprehensive faith in fact if you unite um the two together. Well, what the what the divines at the Westminster Assembly did was simply put the thirty nine articles together with the Irish articles and a bit of theological glue, and hey presto, you got the Westminster Confession of Faith. So the Westminster Confession of Faith is largely the thirty nine articles and the Irish articles and a bit of theological glue. It's it's very good Confession of Faith. It's the Westminster Confession of Faith. 
Um, but it's the amalgamation of two Anglican confessions, and that's perhaps something that's not altogether appreciated by many Presbyterians around the world. Um, it's a pity that uh, it's not operative in the Church of England. We just have the 39 articles. I guess the Irish Church still has the Irish articles. I don't know. But um, that's an interesting point. But unfortunately, that doesn't mean that the practice of the church is reformed or that even the priests adhere to the 30 or believe the 39 articles. In fact, I said to a priest who'd not long been ordained, what do you think of the 39 articles? And he said to me, well, I'd have to read them first. Strangely enough, he had to give assent to these articles to become ordained, as I understand it anyway. So you see, there we have the problem. Um, the Church of England, if it was to stick to its confession um, and actually stick to what it should be, is a very, very... Uh, the, the, the confession of the uh, Church of England is a very good confession. But again, we're back to the same problem. It's, it's, it's wandered off into error. It's gone into apostasy. You don't have the same kind of thing in the USA. You don't have an established church. It may seem rather peculiar... Uh, to Americans that we have this kind of arrangement it's goes historically it goes back a long way and as I say I'm actually in favour of the establishment principle but the pro and the problem that we face today isn't the establishment principle it's simply the apostasy of the church and you don't have to be established to become apostate and um, that's the same I guess you face that same problem in the USA I was listening to your book, The Christian Passover, Agape Feast or Ritual Abuse, that uh, Nathan Conkey narrated for Reconstructionist Radio. Uh, excellent work, by the way. Uh, I think you hit the nail on the head there, and you're pointing at the right direction, uh, that the new reformation that we need to uh, start moving towards here in America and in the UK and across the world is, is a reformation towards proper fellowship uh, within the body of Christ. Can you talk a little bit about that? The kingdom of God is a social order, and a social order is made up of communities. And communities have to operate at the local level, and communities require geographical proximity. And at the local level, we need to operate as a real community. Christians in an area need to operate as a real community, a, a, a real society. By community, I don't mean commune, but a, a social order. And that means that the church is an important part of that, the, the meeting of Christians together. But the purpose of it is not simply to perform a ritual. If we load into what we do on a Sunday morning in a church service, if we load the whole of the faith into that, we end up with a mystery cult, something that's all about ritual and basically about escapism. Rather, we should see that, that, that our purpose is to pursue the kingdom of God and to realise, to manifest the social order of the kingdom of God in our communities. Now, church is an important part of that, but it's not the whole of it. But when we do get together, we need to make sure that we're not just doing rituals. Now, there's nothing wrong with ritual per se, and I'm not saying there's anything, anything wrong with liturgy per se. If you go through a liturgy and you say um, the Ten Commandments, it bangs it into people's heads. If you say the confession, it bangs it into their heads. If you say the Lord's Prayer, it bangs it into their heads. They remember it. The purpose of doing this is didactic. It's in order to teach something, to instill something in somebody's mind. 
when you do it for the sake of the ritual itself, then it becomes problematic. There should be nothing magical about ritual. And if we see it as something that has to be done because it has value in itself, then we're off down the magical route. In actual fact, Christianity is about living in the kingdom of God. It's about being light to the world, showing the world how to live. Simply doing rituals isn't what the Christian faith is about. A ritual, therefore, is a tool, and a liturgy is a tool, and it's all right while it remains a tool. The problem is when the tail starts wagging the dog instead of the dog wagging the tail, when all the importance of what it is of the Christian faith, what it is to practice a Christian faith, gets loaded into what we do on a Sunday service. Now, two ministers of the gospel have said to me recently the most important thing you can do in life is to be attending the sunday morning ritual now this is to say that everything we do in life takes second place against the mere performance of a ritual and when you go to these rituals this is what i find anyway church rituals you get the ritual but you don't get much fellowship I mean, here in England, you go to the Church of England or any other number of churches, you don't get much teaching either. The teaching is at a very, very poor level. It's not real teaching of the faith. You get to see, sing a few hymns and perform a ritual. And that is not the Christian faith. If you load the meaning of the Christian faith into those few activities, what you've got is a mystery cult. And the Christian faith is not a mystery cult. And it wasn't seen as a mystery cult by the Romans. The reason the Romans didn't like the Christians wasn't because they worshipped the wrong deity. It, because, it, it, it is because they were considered to be imperium in imperio, a state within a state. They were operating as a true social order within Roman society. And the Romans didn't like that. And the charge against them was always political, not religious in the narrow sense. The problem wasn't that they worshipped the wrong deity. The problem was that they constituted an alternative political order to Rome within Rome itself, and Rome could not tolerate that. Um, so we have to be careful about how we think about church, because I think there has been for a long time, and remains so, a tendency to think very ritually and liturgically, and this also happens um uh, today as well and even amongst reformed believers as well and what we have to understand is most of the encouragement that we actually get in church comes from fellowship now okay we get teaching but the real encouragement in the faith we get from fellowship and i find when you go to church usually you get very little of that you get ritual you might get a cup of coffee afterwards but that's just about all but actually Fellowship is about being a community of people. It's about relating to each other. And the Bible gives us a very specific way in which that happens. And it's always covenantal. God always relates by means of covenant. And so we have to see our societies as covenantal societies, not just ritual centres, but covenantal societies, because the kingdom of God is a social order. And a social order is made up of communities. And the Christians in a particular area need to be a real community, a real social order, so that they can be, in the way they live as communities, lights to the world. And we need to take seriously the need to manifest the social order of the kingdom in our communal life. And so that's what Christians in an area need to do to function together. But in order for that to happen, you need geographical proximity. 
it's very difficult to be a real community when you live 30 miles apart from each other. However, if we can do this, if we can actually get local communities working as real communities, real social orders, we will provide a light to the world. And two things will happen when that happens. First is a lot of people will want to join. And those who don't will want to persecute it. And these two things will happen together. And we, if we want the victory, we can't avoid the battle. If, you, if you're not prepared for the bat, if you're not pre- prepared to engage in the battle, you're not going to get a victory. Now, the victory is the victory is assured, but it requires to engage in the battle. And it seems to me that what we need to do as church, as Christians is stop loading everything in the Christian faith into the church in the sense of the rituals that we do together and see that the Christians have to be a real community. Yes, the church is an important part of that, but it's not the whole of it. And therefore we have to function as Christian communities, as a real social order, and demonstrate to the world the difference between the world the way the, way the world lives and the way Christians live. Because community in the secular humanist societies of the West today is breaking down everywhere. And this is important that we show that we are, as a body, we are a functioning social order now i want to say a word at this point about what we do when we do get together as a church as a a local community to meet on a sunday and that's to do with communion or the lord's supper what's happened in the church is that this meeting for the lord's supper has been completely ritualized and turned into a sort of a a magical uh, liturgy and i think this is not what the new testament uh, sets forward the Lord's Supper was the, is the Christian Passover. The, the Last Supper was the last true Jewish Passover and the first Christian Passover. And it was a meal and it was a covenant meal. And we have to get away from magical thinking about the Lord's Supper. And we have to get to thinking covenantally. The Reformers did a very good job in dealing with baptism and ch- ch- turning it from a co- from a magical view of baptism to a covenantal view of baptism. They didn't have the same success with the Lord's Supper. I don't think there was the same desire to turn the Lord's Supper into a covenantal meal. There was still the whole emphasis upon the real presence. And even Calvin said this. He said himself there's no difference between what is received in the Lord's Supper. No difference between the Catholics, what the Catholics receive and what we receive. We receive the whole Jesus Christ. Uh, the, manner, the difference is only in the, manner of the, in the manner of reception, whereas the Catholics believe that Jesus comes down from heaven into the elements. This is an important thing, the elements. Um, Calvin believed that um, we were translated up into heaven there to partake of the whole Christ fully. Well, Really, there's no difference in bet- between the Catholics and Calvin in what is being received. As he himself said, it's only the manner of reception, but it's still not a covenant meal. It's some kind of mystical communion that we're having in Calvin's view. And I don't believe that's bi- biblical at all, that the Lord's Supper is a covenant meal. And it's meant to be a real meal. And if you turn it into something that's just a ritual, you lose it um, in, in the agape feasts of the early church what happened was not that they just had a little cube of bread and a sip of wine it was a meal together and they didn't get 
separated out and the if you like the communion element wasn't ritualized until much later on there was the case of the corinthians where paul said that they were to eat a tome and the reason for this was because they were under discipline and they were under discipline because they were not discerning the body they were ill-treating each other some were turning up drunk some turned up with food some turned up without food and it was a complete shambles it wasn't what it was supposed to be and the body of christ the people the community were being abused they were abusing each other and that's what went wrong there and paul put them under discipline now the form in which the celebration of the lord's supper is had today is a disciplinary form it's not meant to be the norm the norm is to have a meal together and that was so in the early church and in the sub-apostolic church as well so we need to get back to that covenant meal and it is a fellowship event the most important ritual in in the church in the church's meeting together on the lord's day is a meal together and it's not a ritual it's a covenant meal and it's inherently a fellowship event it is not some priest at the front expounding his doubts or waving the wafer around or prancing around in frocks and dresses that's not what it's about that's that's the invention of men and even when we come to the protestant churches they may not have the frocks and dresses and things but basically they've ritualized it and they've made it into a priestly thing because only the priest can say things only the priest he might be a protestant uh, presbyter priest but basically it's, it, it's a form of priesthood the lord's supper is a covenant meal of the fellowship with their king and if we're going to if, if it's insisted that uh, that's not what it is that it's some kind of ritual what's happening is that the people's citizenship of the kingdom is being taken away from them and it's being taken away from them by priests who want to control everything according to their ideals not it's not about what the new testament sets forward so we need a lot of reform here and one of the problems is that this has become so important. The ritual element of this has taken over from the real meaning of what that covenant meal is to be about. That it's about being a true community, a true social order, a covenant social order that, um, that manifests the kingdom of God. And, and the meal itself is the symbol. The, 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 the bread and the wine are not the symbols. It's the meal itself that, it, that is a symbol of what it means to be a covenant community in fellowship with each other. 1 Corinthians 11.29 often uses the proof text for uh, credo communion. Stephen, would you say that that passage refers to when it says discerning the body of Christ, is that referring to the elements being distributed or is that referring to acknowledging that we are a covenant community and thus would of necessity include children of the covenant i tend to the latter as you have just explained it the body is the community of christians what paul is saying is how can you treat each other in this way they were the body of christ not not the elements and we have not really had communion together unless we have had a meal together unless the church is under discipline ordinarily it should be a meal when we fail to discern the Lord's body, or rather when the Corinthians were 
failing to discern the Lord's body. They were failing to understand what their meeting together for this covenant meal was about. And they were treating each other badly. And that's where their failure lay. And um, if, if we turn the covenant meal into a mere ritual, then we've got to have somebody to administer that ritual. So then it turns into a sacrament something special a magical ritual and you need some special person to to do that a priest and that's not really what the new testament is about at all this is a covenant meal of the community the christian community the the family of god meeting together for a meal the picture that you're painting implies to me anyway that this celebration of the lord's supper is both a commemoration and a sacrament as regards the word sacrament, I think we need to understand something of the etymology and history of this word. The word sacrament comes from a Latin word, sacramentum. It's a Latin word, it's not a Greek word. Um, and originally a sacrament, a sacramentum, was a sum of money deposited by Romans who went to court. And the one who lost his case, his sacramentum was used to defray the costs and to helped to maintain the public bu public buildings and uh, temples and things like that in Rome. That's what the word sacramentum originally, originally meant. From that it came to mean an oath, and the legions would take a sacramentum in the sense of taking an oath. And it was Tertullian who first used the word sacramentum in the sense that it's used by Christians today to mean what Augustine called a visible sign of an invisible grace. But before he'd used it in that sense, Tertullian had used it just to mean an oath in the ordinary sense in which the um, the Romans used it. The use of the term to mean sacramentum in the ecclesiastical sense is very much a church thing. It's, it's, it's what the church did to the word. And sacramentum was used um, as a translation of the Greek word mysterion. And it's a Latin word. The Lord's Supper is not spoken of as a sacrament in the Bible. It's not even a Greek word. It's, the Lord's Supper is rather a covenant meal. Um, and it's a meal that we eat together. It's not something that's distributed and done by a priest who says special words to turn the, bod the, the body and the, the bread and the wine into the actual body and blood of Christ. This is all a later addition, and it's, it's not what the Bible is talking about. With regard to my use of the word sacrament, I have to confess that there is some inconsistency there. When I'm talking about the covenant rituals, the Lord's Supper and baptism, I, I, I will... Uh, often say that there are no sacraments in the Bible, and I believe that is the case. I don't believe that this concept of sacrament is a biblical one at all. Um, it's it's a magical term, and it's come from outside the biblical worldview. It's been sort of nominally baptized, but it's not really a biblical concept at all. Um, it, it's 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 come from the Latin. However, we do have in the Bible covenant rites, and we have the Lord's Supper and baptism so when i'm speaking about those things i try to explain this and i say there are no sacraments in the bible which i believe is true there are no sacraments in the bible there are covenant rites um but they're not sacraments however sometimes when you're in a discussion with somebody and you refer to the sac sacraments 
or rather when I refer to the sacraments, I might the subject of discussion might not be baptism and the Lord's Supper. It might be just in passing, and the word sacraments is sometimes just an easy an easy word to say what you mean. And I've sometimes used that term because the, so many Christians use it just for sh like shorthand. Um, I ought to stop doing that. I try to stop doing that, but it, it's it's because we've used the term so much, and uh, it's some it's just difficult to give up using a word sometimes that's been used so much when it's such a good shortcut. It, you know, if I if I had to explain every time somebody used the word sacrament that it's a covenant right, not a sacramental magical right. Even when the discussion is not about that, when the mention of the sacraments just to mean the Lord's Supper and baptism is quite incidental to the discussion. It's, it's easy just to take the word sacraments and, and move on and not, not go into that, that explanation. But strictly speaking, um, I don't believe there are any sacraments. I think it is one another of these problem words, another problem translation. Another word, of course, that's a problem in translation is the word church which comes from a 4th century Greek term, kurikon, which meant the palace, which was itself, uh, comes from the kuriakon, uh, um, an adjective meaning, you know, of the Lord, to refer to a building. And of course, ecclesia, which is used to translate, doesn't refer to a building at all. The ecclesia was the political assembly of the demos in Greek city-states like Athens. And it's a political word. It's not, it's not a cultic term. And we, re we really shouldn't translate ecclesia as church at all, but as assembly or congregation. But And therefore, we use the word church to mean different things, not always being fully aware ourselves at times how we're using it, and it causes confusion. So these are translation issues, but we have to be careful that we don't build, theolo build theology on faulty translation. And I'm afraid the whole concept of sacraments and the, the magic that has arisen around it is is a faulty theology built on poor translation um, and poor understanding of translation. Stephen, we come to the end of the hour here and we really appreciate your time and uh, it's been a great lesson to understand what's been going on over there in the UK, uh, what's going on with you and the Kuiper Foundation and uh, the lesson on uh, ritual versus fellowship. Uh, so thank you very much, uh, Stephen. If you can point our listeners to any websites you'd like them to uh, look into and I just want to tell you thank you uh, from Reconstructionist Radio for allowing us to narrate your book library that you have there at the Kuiper Foundation uh, we really appreciate it and we pray that it uh, bears much fruit for the kingdom well thank you very much for interviewing me it's been a pleasure to talk to you your listeners can get more information about the Kuiper Foundation from our website at www.kuiper.org Kuiper there is spelt K-U-Y-P-E-R and then .org If you go on our site there you can download PDFs of all our books you can buy the hard copy or you can just download the PDF if you want to You can also see PDF files of our journal Christianity and Society and you can download the PDFs of the journal free of charge and we also have lectures and short films that you can look at. I've also got a new book coming out God willing later this year called The Politics of God and the Politics of Man 
and that's essays in politics, religion and social order. And that will be available both as a hard copy to buy on our website and as soon as it's available to buy as a hard copy, there will also be a PDF of the book that you can download free of charge. This book was based on a series of lectures and you can listen to these lectures on our website on the lectures page. There's also a questions page on the website and you can send in questions and uh, we will try to answer them. If you send in a question, we won't display your name. Your question will be displayed anonymously and we will answer it. But you'll have to put your name in when you send the question in. But it won't be displayed online. Thank you for speaking to me and interviewing me. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for joining us in the war room. Please enjoy The Nation's Rage, Psalm 2, by my soul among lions. Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete weekly lineup of seven distinct shows. You can subscribe now to your favorite shows on iTunes, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed on iTunes, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner financially with this ministry. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.